Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Thursday, January 2nd, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO Sports Marketing Executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinatospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Because this, this is my, I did it last year. God, it takes so long to put this together. I don't know if I'm going to do it again. I guess, I guess I'll just keep doing it uh, if you guys like it. Let me know if you like this stuff. I'm actually, I had to split my deep dive up into two different episodes. I'm going to do my 2020 preview next episode. This one's going to run long. But, I, you know, it's my review section um, for the entire year, basically. I, I, I show you how much it costs to partake in every single um outlet, you know, distribution option, so to speak, and and what you got for it and whether it was worth it. Um, So 2020 previews, I I started doing that and I'm just going to end up having to do that next. That'll be my deep dive next episode, I guess. Um, And and then let's just, let's get into it because a lot happened. There was a lot to review. I got a lot to say about that stuff. And then we'll just get into the, to the fun stuff. So, okay, let's start out with Friday, December 20th in Phoenix on DAZN. We have Daniel Jacobs beating Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. at Chavez weight in one of the more amazing TV performances we've seen in 2019. Uh, basically just an all-out quit job by, by Chavez Jr. Also on the card, Julio Cesar Martinez beats Christopher Rosales by KO9 in an incredible fight for a vacant WBC flyweight title. And then Mo Hooker wins his comeback fight by KO1 over Uriel Perez. Gabe Rosado, of course, ends up fighting in the walkout fight in front of an empty arena after being used to make an extra million bucks for Danny Jacobs uh, in terms of leverage. This fight card started out uh, really promising, and it kind of just ended up being like a, a, a freak show for boxing at its finest. And I am an admitted Chavez Jr. apologist, and, and, and we'll get into that. I just think it's I think it's very easy to constantly rip him for every weird turn he's had in his career. And, you know, he's he's ripped for being enabled and coddled. And, you know, the constant critique is that he can get away with a lot of stuff that no other boxer could get away with. And all that stuff is true. And he quit here, which makes it really frustrating. Um, the narrative so far from most boxing writers has been, like, this should be Chavez Jr.'s last chance. They're, I'm so fed up with him. Most of the core fans are fed up with him. 
you know, my response to all this is Chavez Jr. is going to get another chance. Like, he is definitely going to get another chance. Every promoter at some point will fall in love with the guy, will see his potential for selling tickets and pay-per-views or subscriptions or whatever it is, and they're going to give this guy another chance. I don't know how many he has left, but here's the thing you have to understand. Among boxers, and quite frankly, among most athletes, period, their kids, especially if they're like a Hall of Famer, their kids will just likely not reach their level. And when you add in that dimension where it's like a national icon of the sport, which Chavez Sr. was, like if Chavez Sr. was a soccer player, his son was talented enough to probably have just been a popular soccer player who could hack it in a lower level, you know, in like the Mexican League or MLS or something like that and carve out a career. Like if you want to talk football, you've seen a couple examples of it. There's not too many though. Like in in terms of who's playing today right now, I mean like Howie Long had a couple kids, a couple kids who were pretty good, but they were not like Hall of Famers by any means. You know, Ed McCaffrey, he had a, like four or five sons and one of them is a superstar right now, but the rest one of, of them are like, they might get a cup of coffee with an NFL team. And Ed McCaffrey's not really a Hall of Famer or anything like that. It, like, there's just, there's a lot of examples of role players who had kids who turned out to be great. And I don't want to belabor the point here. Because the overall point is, in boxing, this is a sport where like every single athlete comes from poverty or nothing. Or like lower middle class or as low of a middle class upbringing as, as you can get that is in poverty. You definitely don't see kids of rich, iconic people becoming stars. You, you just don't see it. Like some, there are some examples of really good fighters who have kids who end up being pretty good. They're usually not fighters who made millions and millions of dollars and they're definitely not fighters who are like national icons and I think that my overall point with this is where you do have to give Chavez Jr. a lot of credit is he actually learned how to box professionally and he actually got to be pretty good like his biggest accomplishments may end up being knocking out Andy Lee and having some like lower level middleweight title defenses and then obviously almost knocking out Sergio Martinez and actually probably de facto ending Sergio's career but like even when you look at that, I mean, his biggest, I don't want this to be a career look back on Chavez Jr., but yeah, maybe all he was able to do is figure out how to lose a ton of weight, of water weight, rehydrate, and then kind of fight two weight classes above his opponents. And he actually kind of saw us in the first two or three rounds against Jacobs. Like, with any other last name, you can make an argument that Chavez Jr. is like a really good journeyman like somewhere in between that to like kind of a of of an okay fighter who went who when he goes to the elite level like the truly like a, a a good fighter who when he goes to the elite level like just can't hack it it's this is though the narrative amongst hardcore fans to casuals like the fact is that this guy won a title and he was actually able to compete with the elite fighters of his generation and really Canelo truly embarrassed him, but he didn't get embarrassed against a lot of the other guys. Like, I mean, he's on his way to getting embarrassed against Sergio. And there's, I'm not saying he's, he's an elite talent. Like, there's no question he's not. 
and he's not consistent and he doesn't take things seriously unless there's a bright shiny object at the end of the rainbow. But because of his last name and because he's actually pretty good, like he, he is a former titleist and he, he actually did some pretty decent things. It's just, it's always going to be there for him. He means so much to the most consistent boxing crowd that is willing to tune in and, and buy pay-per-views. And there's just not many other Hall of Fame fighters who have kids who, who you know, actually are good enough to fight in multiple pay-per-view fights and multiple prime spots on network TV. And... Like a lot of this is just, you have to give Chavez Jr. credit that he actually learned how to fight at a really, a pretty high pro level. And, you know, obviously, when he fought people, like, here's the thing if you rewind to the beginning of this decade, there was a serious debate as to who was going to end up having the better pro career, Chavez Jr. or Canelo. And I think most people would have said Canelo was more talented, but Chavez Jr. probably had more momentum early on and didn't and, and looked better against probably the same level of competition. And just as a tool to bring boxing to casual Mexican-American fans, like... That's what you want. Like th- those were the guys, and Chavez Jr. will still get more chances. You know, I think you could do a comeback in a different way, but it's not over for him. And stuff like this is embarrassing. Yeah, it is. But if you build it back in the right way, he's going to get more chances. I don't know why I spent, especially for this episode. It, here's my overall thing: when you put Chavez Jr. on, the circus is coming to town, and if you do it right. You're going to sell a lot of pay-per-views and a lot of tickets and a lot of subscriptions. And if you do it wrong, it's going to be embarrassing. But because that potential exists for doing it right, he will get more chances. And the potential for that exists. There's Look, he has other siblings. They're just not as good as him. And I'm not saying he's elite. I'm saying he's he hit a point in his career where he got to be pretty dang good. All right. Before we move on, the co-main event was incredible, and Dan Jacobs looked pretty good, although we didn't learn much about him except for the fact that he looked, you know, in terms of how he looked in the ring at 168, he looked pretty good. All right, enough on that. Let's move on. On Saturday, December 21st, on ESPN Plus from London, we have Daniel Dubois winning by KO2 versus Kyotaro Fujimoto at heavyweight. Liam Williams wins by KO5 against Alantes Fox. I don't have a whole lot to say about this one other than Daniel Dubois is very young. He might have another year in him in terms of just taking on these top 30-ish level heavyweight fights and like sort of continue that learning process. And I'm fine with that given his age. I'm more interested in seeing who his real first step-up fight is, and we can talk about that more when the time comes. But, I mean, this guy, for me, probably the best heavyweight prospect in the world right now. So he fights, I'm watching. All right. Also on Saturday, December 21st, we have Jermel Charlo beating Tony Harrison by KO11 in a rematch. And on Fox, 
in a rematch where uh, Charlo reclaims his WBC junior middleweight title. F.A. Ajagbe wins by KO5 over Iago Kaladze at heavyweight, and then Rene Giron beats Carlos Balderas essentially twice by knocking him out. Um, so for Fox, the entire show does an average of 1.65 million viewers, which isn't great, but when you add in the streaming and Fox Deportes, it gets up to 1.85 million, and then it peaks during the main event at 2.23 million. Must be noted, there was heavy competition, mostly because the NFL ran a triple header on Saturday, which just dominated the ratings. And then while Saturday Night Live didn't completely, uh, it didn't directly compete with boxing. Um, it did really, really well. You just got to throw that out there as a note. Uh, NFL Network, I think, had eight of the top 10 shows on cable between the games they had and then the pre and post games they had. And I think the top six shows on cable outdrew everything on network TV except SNL. Um, and, you know, the other networks, they didn't have super strong programming on uh, to compete, but that's just because of what the NFL was doing. You know, the boxing, you know, boxing on P, you know, PBC boxing on Fox beat all the reruns on CBS in terms of total numbers and demos, which is great. You love to see that. ABC ran college football most of the day, and boxing actually compared pretty well there, which is impressive. The games during the day like just barely beat boxing. The night game beat it by a wider margin, but still didn't dominate. I think like the Las Vegas Bowl averaged like 2.6 million viewers and didn't have the greatest demos in the world. NBC ran all the usual Dateline material, which beat boxing and total viewership, but basically had the same demos. Um, so even though that 1.65 million number is low when you factor in everything else actually a pretty decent night for pbc on fox um especially if you look past the 10 p.m hour and just isolate the main event the actual fight card was great top to bottom probably fox's best card all year top to bottom the main event was very entertaining clash of styles and we learned a lot probably not in a good way about two of pbc's bigger prospects um but that's fun I mean, usually these undercards just go the way they're supposed to, especially, and I'll get into this later for PBC. Um, in fact, when we, you know, like, a Ajagbe was 50 to 1. So, in fact, when you look at that, it's like, okay, like, I'm not sure what they were for Balderas, but I think he was like 7 or 8 to 1 or something like that, like a significant favorite. And we don't know how these are going to turn out. I mean, Balderas may end up just learning some valuable lessons from this. Um, and moving on and being good, but we don't know. This could kind of be the end, you know, the first fight for him where we learn he's not an elite fighter and he won't be, and, you know, the end is coming soon. Ajagbe was involved in one of the crazier sequences. I mean, it, great, it, it made great TV. Like, it looked like Kaladze was almost out on his feet or doing some kind of weird Emmanuel Augustus drunken boxing thing, and he just, like, decked Ajagbe. Ajagbe recovered enough to win by KO, obviously, um, you know, w with him, you marvel at his body and athleticism, but when you really, athleticism is actually probably the wrong word. Like for him, especially athleticism can be deceiving because you look at his body and you look at his frame and it's like, he's got this Greek God body. He looks like a, a great heavyweight, but he, there's a stiffness and overall lack of fluidity and, I don't know. That is part of athleticism. That is. And to be fair to him, I think he still has a really high ceiling and huge potential. Um, and I don't dig him too much for this because he's 
clearly still in the learning stage of his career, but it did bring up some signs where it's like, oh, some of this stuff that we maybe have seen before could come back to bite him if he doesn't learn. So hopefully he learns from it. You know, moving on to the main event, I don't do fight of the <clears throat> fight of the year lists officially, but you know, if you're making a, a, a list, I mean, this has to be in consideration for it. Um, it was a great fight. If if it's not, it's certainly on that second tier of fight of the year list. If it's not in the top three or four or five or whatever, uh, what I found really impressive about it is just it wasn't just a brawl. There was a major strategic clash. There were tactical adjustments made through the fight. It was a great build up to it. Um, it felt like a big fight. I mean, clearly the, there was a decent audience watching it on Fox. Great effort. Great effort from from PBC. Um, Let's move on and get through the review section. On Monday, December 23rd from Yokohama, Japan on ESPN+, Plus, we have Ryota Murata beating Stephen Butler by KO5 for Murata's WBA regular middleweight title. Also on the card, Ken Shiro beats Randy uh, Pedal-Corin by KO4 to win his WBC or to retain his WBC junior flyweight title. Uh, Maruti Mithalain beats Akira Yagashi by KO9 to retain his IBF flyweight title. And then we saw Chocolatito winning by KO2 over DML Diokos. Really fun card top to bottom. One that had high-level boxing, lots of KOs, and there really was only one mismatch. I mean, I think Chocolatito was in a complete mismatch. And you got to ding ESPN Plus a little bit for showing the Chocolatito fight on delay, but not that much. I mean, everything else on this card was really good. Ken Shiro, I mean, that, that was excellent. You know, the main event, main event was good. I mean, Stephen Butler isn't the greatest opponent, I'd say. Like, it's still, like, like he's credible. I mean, he's not not the greatest. If if this is just a stay-busy fight from Ronda and we see him come back quick, then you don't knock him any points at all. I mean, it, 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 this was a, a really fun card. I don't know how. I mean, you start to hear, like, Canelo might go fight him in Japan. I don't know how Stephen Butler would get you that fight. But... This ended up just being a really fun card to watch and pretty high-level boxing. And I think, you know, Ken Shiro, there is there's some buzz out there for that guy. He is really fun to watch. All right, let's move on to probably the most significant fight out of all these. On Saturday, December 28th, from Atlanta on Showtime, we ended the year with Gervonta Davis beating Yuriorkis Gamboa by KO12 to win a vacant WBA Regular lightweight title, um, kind of a BS title, but at some point might not be a BS title. I don't know. Also on the card, Jean Pascal beats Badu Jack for Pascal's WBA regular lightweight title that has debatable lineage as well. And then Lionel Thompson beats Jose Uzgateki at super middleweight. Uh, the Showtime cards get split into individual events per fight where they are rated, but the ratings were as follows. Main event average, 577,000 viewers and was the number 14 cable show of the day. The undercards averaged 471 and 482,000 viewers, and they were the number 18 and 19 cable shows of the day. The main event peaked at just over 600,000 viewers. Some important things jump out at you when you look at these numbers. First of all, how high it ranked. It was the number 14 show of the day, and that's because it was up against the college football semifinals, which did bonkers numbers on cable. The Clemson-Ohio State game averaged over 20 million viewers. 
And literally the top 13 sh cable shows of the day were on ESPN and were somehow college football related. They were either the, the semifinal games. I think there was one other bowl game. There were the pre and post games. There was the sports center that came on directly after. So Gervonta Davis was actually the top rated cable show of the day that wasn't ESPN college football related. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Another thing that was just, it, it like, it, when you look at the female demos that Davis did for boxing, for boxing, they're really strong. Like, he did really well in there for boxing. When you look at the social metrics for, for Davis's fight, they did really well. I mean, you basically, you know, again, didn't go viral, viral, but sort of what you would consider viral for boxing. Like, there are a few different posts that did that. Obviously, the hip-hop community really comes out for Davis. Like, you can... You know, sort of see just by the social activity and who's in the crowd, who's paying attention. Uh, you know, just that crowd is there, which is incredible. I mean, it's another audience for him that is, you know, can push him into the mainstream a lot more. I did see a lot of social media debate about ticket sales for Davis on Boxing Twitter, which is not a place I try to spend a lot of time, but hey, um, I'm doing this podcast, so I guess I, I'm, I'm there. And here's the thing. Most fighters who are quote-unquote draws are able to do it in their hometown or one specific market. Maybe they can do it in two markets. You know, it, it, it translates to other cities maybe if there's concerted effort put in. So Davis drew okay in the beginning of this year in L.A., like solid, like pretty good, okay, certainly good for not living there. Then he did really well in Baltimore, which is his hometown, and now he does really well in Atlanta, which also had a major college football game taking place in the city that same day. And Atlanta has never been a boxing market, and uh, many people in the boxing industry have noted how strong of a potential there is to be one, and I think that's really just because it has a high, uh, well-educated, affluent African-American population. It ranks among, you know, it. quite frankly... It never ranks that high in terms of being a top pay-per-view market. Like, it doesn't over-index, I guess I should say, like, for its population or anything like that, for TV ratings or pay-per-view. You know, I think you could say that because there's sort of this hip-hop community there and, and because of the aforementioned uh, connection that Davis has with that community, that's maybe why it did well. Um, but Davis drew well there. And he drew well in a city that has very little track record of coming out for boxing. And Davis did pretty well in three different cities without significant opponents in 2019. There's a lot of talk of him going to pay-per-view next. And I don't know if that is definitely the best move for him next. I mean, clearly, he probably could do it at this point. He has the potential to draw a pay-per-view audience that are not core boxing fans, which is what you need to make that jump. That's extremely important. And I think, you know, also, we haven't seen him against a top-flight opponent. I think with a top-flight opponent, he could do pay-per-view, and he could do okay there. Uh, you did see a few things with him... <laughs> that are signs for concern. I mean, he missed weight on his initial attempt while moving up in weight. 
I don't ding him too much for that. I think anytime you change weight classes, it's always going to be tough. Uh, but obviously, there have been a lot of pictures of him in between training not looking great. So you, you kind of have to wonder with him a little bit on that. Um, Gibbo is a lot older. And while he did put on a good performance like Davis, you could make an argument you probably should have got rid of him faster. Um, but look, I don't dig him too much on this. I think he looked pretty good. I think this is a learning experience. Overall, the card for Showtime was very entertaining. It definitely brought back some hope. I mean, that Pascal Jack undercard for me was the first time in 2019 that we saw an undercard, which we regularly saw uh, in, in the first half of 2018. I think it's a big win for them to close out the year at a time, you know, when a lot of people are ready to basically bury them as a network. All right. For the deep dive, like I said up top, I'm doing a year-end review show. What kind of value you got as a subscriber, viewer, purchaser of whatever these boxing entities had to offer. I'll go through Showtime and ESPN, ESPN Plus, and Pay-Per-View, and Fox, and FS1, Fox Pay-Per-View, zone everything. And what, I'll list the fight cards, and I'll make a note if there were undercards that were significant. And what I really want to establish here is just the notion of like, is the boxing working for you as a consumer? How much you're paying for it? What level of boxing it is? And then kind of, is it working for the network? Although I think I'll now be getting more into that next episode, you know, 2020 preview and, and I'll fo focus more, less on the consumer. I think this one, just because of how long it's going to end up being, I'll focus on the consumer for this one. And, and I'll focus on the network's uh, next one. So a few upfront things for pay-per-views. I'm just going to go with the suggested retail price, which I think was 75 bucks for every single one of them this year. Uh, it must be noted that not every cable system charges that. Like Spectrum in LA, for instance, charges $65 for a pay-per-view. You know, I'm going to list what the cable companies pay for the ESPNs and FS1s of the world. Uh, I'm going to give a grade for each of the offer, you know, for, for their offerings. But it's kind of a tough grade to give in a lot of instances. I mean, Fox, for example, we'll get into it. It shows a big Fox, FS1, and pay-per-view. Uh, a lot of other distributors had different categories as well. I think this helps add a little nuance, but it's tough you almost have to either give every single different thing they're doing a grade or just give, you know, one grade overall. Another thing, when I go through these lists, most of the time I'm just either going off of what a PR person sent me or what the website says for these things. So I'm, I'm aggregating this stuff. So if I missed a card or a special undercard fight, like mea culpa to the entity where it happens, but... It takes a long time to put this podcast, this particular podcast episode, just takes a long time to put it together, you know. Okay, let's start out with last year's top scorer. Showtime got an A-minus last year for me in terms of value. Needless to say, they will not get that this year. To subscribe to Showtime, you can get it for $12 a month, so $144 a year. Um, that is the streaming version, and I guess depending on how big of a cable package you get you might say you get it for a little bit more a little bit less but let's stick with that number for right now showtime did one pay-per-view the pacquiao broner pay-per-view cost 75 bucks uh so for the year for showtime you either paid 144 dollars or 219 dollars i would say 
most people probably would not consider Showtime as a sunk cost based on what type of cable package they have. You know, for me personally, I only watch one or two other shows besides boxing, and I would definitely cancel Showtime if it weren't for boxing. So the pay-per-view did okay. It did around 400,000 buys by most estimates. And given the question marks around, around Manny Pacquiao coming to this year, was that, you know, that, that's pretty good. I and mean, there wasn't a significant undercard there. Uh, but, it, you know, and, and most people kind of knew how this one would go. Uh, there were some entertaining all-access episodes in the buildup, though. I'll give Showtime that. That's part of what you're paying for. On the actual pay cable boxing side, Showtime had Gervonta Davis fighting Hugo Ruiz uh, in February. They also had the DeGale Eubank Jr. card in February. They had Laura Castaño in March. They had Easter Bartholomew in April. They had Wilder Brazil in May, which also had Gary Russell Jr. in a mismatch, and they had a fun opener, so that did have some good undercards. June brought us Charlo Brandon Adams. July brought us Gervonta Davis versus Ricardo Nunez. And then there was the uh, Gamboa Martinez undercard fight. There was no high-level boxing in August or September. October brought us the Lubin Gallimore card. Nothing in November, but we do have two December cards, which were Charlo Hogan and then Davis Gamboa, which, as I mentioned above, was one of the better cards that we saw all year in terms of a really entertaining undercard, a star fighter. I think that was good. So we saw a huge rise in the number of showbox cards this year, some of which turned out to be really entertaining. I mean, we had the one Clarissa Shields card in April, um, and then obviously there was one in, I think, August that just didn't end up happening because of that weighing craziness. In terms of overall grade, I mean, Showtime took a major step back this year as a network. I've said this a million times on this podcast and in other places, but 2018 was a banner year for them. And, you know, 2019, they just really didn't have too much to show for it. We got a lot of, you know, you know basically, we had a few stars fighting. We got Deontay, one Deontay Wilder appearance, a few Charlo Brothers appearances, Three Gervonta Davis appearances, all in fights where he was heavily favored. I mean, especially with Davis, I will say, you can make a case that with him, you know, that he was a prohibitive favorite. That was all a negative thing. But I actually think Showtime and PBC, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, they did an excellent job of building him as a brand this year. So I don't knock Showtime. First of all, I don't knock them for the February mismatch because that was supposed to be Abner Morris. He drew well in three different cities. There were great storylines like on TV for him. You know, he's now close to where you can make that jump to pay-per-view. And I think anytime a network does that, it, they deserve some credit for it. But that tangent aside, I mean, I think the real knock here of the main events for Showtime is a lot of them would have been undercards on Showtime in 2018. If we look at 2019 versus 2018. And we'll get into Fox in a second, but I mean, some of Showtime's headlining fights were like, they're similar quality to maybe even a couple FS1 main events. And there just weren't too many competitive main events. Way too many showcase fights. There were some competitive undercards, I'll give them that. But very rarely did we see those lead to other significant fights. 
which is something that 2018 Showtime did really, really well. And the drop in viewership on boxing on Showtime was precipitous this year. And I think we're at the point where every show on Big Fox, almost every show on ESPN, I mean, a lot of the shows on FS1 will outrate Showtimes in terms of viewership. You know, obviously Tank Davis and, and Wilder were bright spots, both in terms of star power and viewership numbers. Uh, but the fight cards that didn't involve them saw real atrophy. I mean, DAZN and ESPN Plus will now basically tell you off the record that they outrate many of the Showtime shows, and they're probably not wrong by saying that. You know, Fox has publicly said that they have the preferred PBC deal. You know, and you know, they're basically saying, like, Showtime gets our second choice. I mean, those are the negatives. Th- those are the negatives when you look at that. And to what extent that's true, I don't know. Um, when you look at the positives, when, and, and that's and I'm, when I say that, I'm saying that really about the Fox stuff. I mean, the Fox is... Is, is publicly saying that. And there's no question for the pay-per-views, they're right. And I think they've probably put on... Well, we'll get to Fox. We'll get to Fox. They've put on some really good fights. I mean, they, they, you know, they're probably right by saying that. Uh, if you look at the positives, though, Showtime has had down years before. Like, they've had negative years before. They've always come back. You know... And if you if you are one of the people who thinks that Showtime is just going to leave the sport after this year, then this is like the downward slope to that happening. But if you think they're going to be here in 10 years, I mean, this is just another, this is a, a blip on the radar. And, you know, a few years from now, maybe DAZN is out of the picture, you know, Maybe Showtime had a weird year or two when they figured out their relationship and strategy with Fox, but they probably will and get a more balanced uh, package of programming. You know, I also think Showtime, they need to start reframing the Nielsen numbers because although their viewership has gone way down, I am certainly one of of what I assume to be a growing number of people that will stream Showtime rather than watch it on linear TV. They're... The numbers aren't encouraging. They were never fantastic on Showtime, especially compared to HBO uh, back in the day. So it's not like there's been this humongous drop over the past eight or ten years or anything like that. You know, and what I would say is, while many in the industry assume that Showtime, like I said, might be out of boxing in 2021... I actually think there's a really strong pathway for them to have a rebound year, like a very strong rebound year in 2020. I'm going to give them a C- minus for 2019, and I probably would have given them a D plus, but I think their December was strong enough to raise that grade. Uh, they still have, in my opinion, the strongest announcing team. They have the strongest production quality, uh, which does count for something. I think that you know the December 28th card was really strong. Overall, there were too many undercard fights, you know, that weren't up to the quality of what we've seen in the past. There were too many mismatches this year. That's why they get the lower grade. But that's what I'll give them. That's what I'm sticking with. I do think, you know, I'll I'll get into this more next episode. I'm not necessarily predicting that they'll have an amazing comeback year in 2020, but I do think there are major pathways to seeing that. And I'll get into those reasons next episode. All right, while we're on PBC, let's move over to Fox. 
Regular Fox is free for everyone. FS1 is part of most standard cable packages that although you might have to pay extra for, you know, if it's a sports package to get it, many times you don't. I think they charge $1.86 a month in terms of what the cable companies actually pay for it, so take that for what it's worth. There were four pay-per-views on Fox at a suggested retail price of $75 each. So if you are the boxing consumer that just buys everything, you probably view this as $300 over the course of the year. And if FS1 is not a sunk cost for you, maybe we can technically say it's $325. Uh, you obviously are spending less if you're a more discerning pay-per-view customer. Let's go through Fox's content. All right, so we had on Fox pay-per-view Garcia Spence in March. We have Pacquiao Thurman in July. Spence Porter in September. Uh, Wilder Ortiz 2 in November. Most of these had pretty strong undercards for pay-per-view fights, which I think must be noted. You know, and overall, it's a pretty decent pay-per-view lineup. I mean, in terms of... Un in terms of overperforming or underperforming, Wild Ortiz 2 was the only true dud. It really underperformed at the box office. Garcia Spence and Spence Pointer, for me, get bonus points because not only did Fox do pretty well on them, but PBC clearly they made money on them. They, I mean, they, they were fiscally responsible when it comes to that. I mean, obviously, with Pacquiao, Pacquiao signed a deal where he got paid so much that I just I don't think anybody made money on him. Uh this year, the numbers just weren't, you know, 500,000. And I, by the way, I don't think Pacquiao Thurman did hit 500,000. Uh, but it's, there were no, it, you know, it probably, you probably could have made a case it should have done better. There were no breakout stars. And I've talked, I think they've all been good fights. Like Pacquiao Thurman's a really good fight. Like it was a really great fight. In terms of the commercial aspect of it, which which is really how pay-per-views get judged, uh, I've talked about this at length on this podcast. If you listen to it all year, you know, with regards to how the pay-per-views have been marketed, and I think that change is probably going to be looked at as a bright spot or a, or a really potentially great bright spot once they finally develop a true pay-per-view superstar, where whoever it ends up being is just a huge draw and can reach that eight, nine hundred thousand, one million by mark uh, pretty regularly. And I think on that aspect, if you're going to ding Fox on the pay-per-view side, you'd point out, hey, Showtime did a much better job in terms of selling pay-per-view just from a purely artistic standpoint. They created much stronger social uh, or shoulder programming. You know, and like I said, there's just not that breakout star yet. I mean, that's not really Fox's fault because they haven't had a chance to build an individual fighter, and these things can be cyclical in boxing. But look, we did, we didn't have a pay per view fight break five hundred thousand buys this year. I, I can't even really remember the last time that happened. I mean, I feel like there's just been. There have been very few years where there hasn't been a pay-per-view hit the million by mark, uh, and it didn't happen this year. And that's not all Fox's fault. That's not all anybody's in particular's fault. I mean, that that's just that's kind of the way how it happened. Uh, and and does, I guess if it's anybody's fault, it's DAZN's fault. And 
to see, I think, on the positive side, just to see how Fox can blast out the awareness during NFL games, it, it's it's like a superpower that I could have only dreamed of back in the day. Um, you know, again, I've been over the, the, the negatives to that ad nauseum. Let's go to Big Fox. I mean, we had Thurman Lopez in January, which also had Kamaski Washington on it. It had that, like, Neambayar Marrero on the undercard. Santa Cruz Rivero was in February, Porter Ugas in March, Garcia Granados in April, Hurd Williams in May, Charlo Coda in June, Plant versus Lee was part of that pay-per-view undercard in July, Kanaski Ariola and Lara Alvarez were in August, Charlo uh, Harrison Charlo too was in December. So for free TV, this is a pretty strong showing, or at least it's a strong showing in spots. There's obviously a couple, a couple of just pure duds here, but you got to mention Herd Williams and Harrison Charlo too as fight of the year candidates, uh, or at least in that like next tier. If you know, if your first tier only has three or four fights, it's in the. They're, they're both top ten fights of the year, really. Um, I really like the Kanaski Ariola fight as well. I thought that was an awesome fight. Porter Ugas turned out to be. Well-matched on paper. I mean, kind of boring on TV in practice. But it was a lauded fight on paper when much of this got announced. And, you know, also, I mean, I actually think uh, Thurman Lopez ended up being pretty fun in practice. and And it had a star, at least. So there's a lot to say. You know, in addition, you go back to that promoting these fights on the air, especially during football games, which did some, that helped some of these things do really strong numbers. I mean, the viewership levels for the top fights, they were solid, not spectacular. I think there's repeatable success here. You know, I think it just needs to, you just need to say like, this is free and this is on Fox and between on network TV, where just more people watch network TV than anything else. All that stuff is positive. All that stuff is positive. There was a commitment to shoulder programming on both Fox and FS1 that was pretty strong. Those are all the good parts. I mean, the negatives, like, when you look at the inconsistent nature of some of the fights on Fox, like Santa Cruz Rivera, Garcia Granados, Lara Alvarez, and those those are either subpar. If you want to talk cynical, I mean, Kayla Plant, Mike Lee, I don't know how you want to judge because that one's like a pay-per-view undercard fight, but that's just sin. I mean, that's just so bad. Charlo Coda, you get a little bit of a pass there because there was an injury involved. But, you know, when you go to the undercards, most of the undercards fights, they're just showcase fights or they're, or they're vets in fights that aren't necessarily going to be fights that lead to fights that aren't super meaningful. Now, look, you did get cases sometimes like the Harrison Charlo two card where we learned a lot about a Jacques uh, Carlos Balderas. Th- those were really good, obviously. Um, the shoulder programming here is prolific, but for me, just not that good for the most part. You know, I'll give two examples here. And when I say good, I mean, HBO and, and Showtime set a standard for this where it's just hard to match. And these companies aren't built to do this kind of programming to truly sell pay-per-views and to truly sell big-time boxing. 
they're just they're 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 just not built to do it. I'll give a couple examples here. So like the fight camp shows a lot of times they did were I would say they're of the same quality that a lot of like the Barker shows were at HBO that we did, which were like the 30 minute documentary shows, which, you know, were lower budget. You spent less time with these guys. Like it's just, you know, again, they're just not built to do this kind of stuff. Um, Showtime's all access is just better. I think it's just higher quality, like the face off shows. And look, I love me some Brian Campbell doing the face off shows. He did a great job hosting when you look at this concept as built as a build-up show for every single main event, I mean, they did so many of those shows. I just question the philosophy behind that. I mean, we did these sporadically at HBO, and it kind of needed to be like a really big main event or there needed to be some true animosity for the concept to work. And when it works, like it works really, really well, but it kind of loses some of the flavor. You know, it loses that special quality when you do one for every single fight, basically. It just ceases to be special. So specifically to the ratings, like the demos were really not that good. When they put on bad cards, like the demos and the ratings were just bad. Like like they just reruns on other networks routinely beat Fox. And, you know, I think the biggest disappointment was the opportunity cost where like Fox and PBC just didn't take the chance of going for a big time, like, a really big TV audience that w- it would have meant probably breaking the pay scale a bit and and providing some like a close to pay-per-view quality fight on the network. I think with their platform and with the way they can market these fights with the especially with the NFL audience and they can put on a fight that's going to have the biggest box the biggest audience boxing's had in like 20 or 30 years if they did that right. Um, and if it, you know, if they needed to cut some money out of shoulder programming, I would say do it. I would say what, one of those would be just a truly great experiment, but you know, they're, they're doing fine with this and you got to remember this stuff's free and they're they're putting on like half their cards this year were pretty good. Like they, they, and the ones they did right, they did really, really well with. All right, let's go to FS1. FS1 had Plant, Uzgateki in January, Durrell, Yildirim in February, Peterson, Lipinets in March, which also had Anthony Peterson versus Argenis Mendez on it, Quillen, Truax in April, which I think had an undercard or two that was pretty good, Trout, Gachet in May, Alexander, Redcatch in June, James, DeMarco in July, Figueroa, Chacon in August, Quillen, Angulo in September, Castaño, Omatoso in November. You know, and there there were some fun undercards on some of these, but most of what we got on this level with FS1 were prospects winning by, by wide decisions or KOs. I mean, look, I have a lot of complaints on the macro level of how these cards are run. I mean, let's just do the negatives first. Like these shows for me were just like logistical. I mean, I think nightmare is, is a strong word, but these things were consistently starting late. They would take forever in the pacing. I mean, I complain above about the streaming stuff. This was almost even worse. I mean, many times there were just two or three pointless undercards, uh, fights that were like, 
borderline embarrassing where you're hearing some you know what was the one classic example like the guy is a waiter at applebee's or something like that and you know you just look at him and he's just not going anywhere and it's not even like these are two journeyman boxers who are true pros who have the potential to put on if you match them up well like maybe not Gotti ward but that type of fight here you know we just saw too much of like stuff that shouldn't be on tv i had way too much joey spencer in my life you know these are the kind of things and joey spencer good prospect there is a reason why there are portions of of decent prospects careers that are not on tv because they're learning experiences and we just saw too much of that on fs1 now that all being said, and the reason I'm vociferously complaining about this, like these are hours of my life that I'm just not getting back. Like the main events were pretty freaking strong for these, for like FS1 fights. I mean, <laughs> honestly, like I said, you can make a case that minus the Tank Davis and Wilder fights on Showtime this year, if you were just given the choice of watching main events on Showtime versus this list of main events, it's kind of close. Like it's, it's, it's closer than you think. And you know, the viewership numbers for these things are low, but actually I think this is a bright spot compared to other programming on FS1. I mean, they're really not bad at all. Like they built on some MLB games, especially towards the end of the year. And look, the audience is like these kind of fights with these kind of audiences, they're not going to mean a ton to advertisers. You know, so when you compare boxing on FS1 to other sports that really draw big time audiences like football or racing, like they're just advertisers aren't going to care about this. But and and some of that's not fair. I mean, FS1 is kind of I think it started out as the speed network, so the racing stuff is like you're going to see huge numbers there. But boxing, I mean, compared to a lot of the other programming outside of like the truly top level stuff that FS1 had. Boxing was pretty good, and I mean, I think they can take this formula and fit, you know, make some adjustments on the pacing of everything. This can really be something good. I mean, the the value you got for FS1, this is the classic example of my biggest complaint about 2019. Like, you just got a tonnage and no curation, but if you actually just went through and curated FS1, it was really strong this year. So overall for Fox... They're doing so many different things that it's hard to just give them a grade that encompasses everything. I'm going to go with a B plus overall. I mean, the regular, like I said, inconsistent, but the good. there was good stuff on regular Fox. It's, I mean, that's just on its own. It's the best value because it's free. All the pay-per-views, I mean, they made a lot of great fights on pay-per-view. You know, Spence Porter and Pacquiao Thurman were really, really good fights. I mean, Wilder Ortiz, too, is at least very interesting, and I think you can make the same case. I wasn't too excited about uh, Garcia Spence going in because I thought it was a total mismatch. Uh, But still, it was a big fight. You know, I wish they would have figured out how to do one less pay-per-view and added depth to other cards. Like, that would have helped out some of my complaints. You probably would have seen a trickle-down effect that would have really helped out. I mean, it's tough to give them two low of a grade because a lot of the stuff they're, they're putting on for free... Um, but even that, it doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, Fox just, it's pretty impressive. And, and, and this is one of the things that, that I think top rank, they won't get as high of a grade 
this year that they did last year. But if you look at what PBC and Top Rank are doing just on a logistical level, it's really impressive. I mean, they went <laughs> these companies four you know three years ago were like surviving off ten or twelve dates on HBO or Showtime. You know, not even that for Top Rank. And now, like, PBC is 10 Fox dates, 12 FS1 dates, four pay-per-views, and then the Showtime dates, too. I mean, it's just so hard to put that much programming on, especially where it's all good. So you got to cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, you know, again, the FS1 stuff is just, like, a total waste of viewing time for me on some of the undercards. And same with, you know, same with Big Fox, too. Like, some of those undercards weren't great. But the pay-per-views did... They were 75 bucks a pack. I mean, my biggest note here is they gave us a lot of the fights that we did want to see. It's just that most of them were on pay-per-view, and that's fine. The inconsistencies were a little bit tough, but B-plus is still a really strong grade. All right, let's move on to ESPN. The ESPN math here is a little fuzzy. I mean, the pay-per-view was 75 bucks, and then ESPN Plus is $49.99 for the year, or $4.99 a month, depending on what you want to do. Um, where it gets a little fuzzy, ESPN itself is pretty much part of every single basic cable package. And I think they charge the cable companies like $7 a month. I think next year it moves to $9. Maybe I'm wrong on that. That might be all the ESPN channels combined. But I mean... Similar to FS1, I think most people who are sports fans and cable subscribers just kind of view this as a sunk cost. So maybe if you bought everything from ESPN, you know, the pay-per-view is 75, ESPN Plus is, is 50, so that's 125. You know, if you want to get super technical, we can maybe call it another $7 a month, you know, for the cable package, so it comes to either 125, 210 total. I guess depends what you actually are spending your money on. All right, ESPN. It had nothing in January, but had the Oscar Valdez, Thomas Sohn, and then uh, Richard Comey, Chania fights in February. They were the undercards to the Kovalev Alvarez rematch. They had Ramirez Zapata, uh, which had a good, fun undercard, Beltran Okada, and then it had Brant Bisangurov. In February as well, in March, they had Pulev Dinu, Vazdik Ngubu, Mean Machine Ray Robinson was on that undercard. In May, there was Biev Kalajic, and then Burchelt Vargas and Navarrete Dogbo, as well as Ito Herring. In June, Valdez Sanchez, Comey Beltran later in June. In July, Stevenson fought Guevara. In August, Navarrete de Vaca. Nothing in September. In October, Biev fought uh, Vaztek, which was which is excellent, by the way. In November, Burchelt fought Sosa. And then in December, the, the post-Heisman card where Crawford fought Mean Machine, Teofimo Lopez fought Comey, and there was the Conlon-Nikitin uh, card. The Pay-per-view in April, we had Crawford fighting Amir Khan, Stevenson fighting Lopez separately, um, or Stevenson and Lopez fighting separately on the undercards. I'll just run through ESPN Plus real quick because I think for ESPN, it's worth hearing both because I think one is just clearly superior to the other. ESPN Plus, 
In January, had Jennings Rivas, which that card also had Stevenson Rosales on it. In February, the Alvarez-Kovalev rematch happened with Teofimo Lopez against Magdaleno in the undercard. In March, it had an Anthony Yard card with Liam Williams and Daniel Dubois on. There was a good Michael. Uh, there was a Michael Conlon fight with a pretty good undercard, Colazzo versus Samuel Vargas on. In April, there was Lomachenko Krola. There was another Daniel Dubois fight. In May, there was a card with B.J. Saunders and Joe Joyce on it. In June, Josh Warrington, Kid Galahad. Uh, there was the Tyson Fury Schwartz card, which also had a pretty good undercard. Jesse Hart, Sullivan Barrera. I'm leaving out. A ton of MTK Global cards featuring guys like Stephen Ward, Lee McGregor, Ryan Walsh, that kind of level of fighter fighting around the world. In July, we had Rob Brandt against Ryota Murata in a rematch. Uh, in that rematch, plus Ken Shiro was on the undercard. We had Daniel Dubois against Nathan Gorman, which I thought was a very solid UK heavyweight matchup of prospects. Joe Joyce, Brian Jennings also on that card. Later in July, we saw Tiafimo Lopez fight. Uh, Nakatani, we had a Michael Conlon fight in August, we had that weird Jason Sosa card that was supposed to be Carl Frampton's return, August also had Kovalev Yard from Russia, which had a decent undercard, Lomachenko, Luke Campbell, which had, and maybe not the most TV-friendly undercard, but, some, you know, Povetkin was on there. In September, Fury, Wallen, Navarrete, Elorde, and Pedrado, Pedraza Zepeda was on that undercard. Another Daniel Dubois fight, a host of MTK cards, including like a Josh Warrant and Easy Defense. Then in October, we got Stevenson, Joette Gonzalez. In November, we got Jamel Herring, Lamont Roach. Uh, I'm leaving out a ton more MTK Global cards. Uh, there was that great card that wasn't, I didn't think it'd be great, but Oscar Valdez fought Adam Lopez, Carl Frampton fought on that card, and the Adamas Teixeira card, uh, Teixeira fight was on that card too. Uh, there was that Navarrete card from Mexico to close out the year. Then there was Daniel Dubois, Fujimoto, and that awesome Japanese card that had Murata Butler, Kenshiro, and Yigashi, you know, Mafalane uh, and, and Yigashi. So to me, it's pretty clear that ESPN has just put, that Disney slash ESPN on the, on the whole has put a larger focus on ESPN Plus being successful, and you're just seeing... You're, you're, you're seeing that play out. I mean, if you look at ESPN Plus, and just in terms of pure value for 49 bucks that you're getting as a boxing fan, I mean, it's just so hard to go through that schedule and say, oh, that's not worth it. Like, this is incredible value. Like, you get a ton of foreign fights, you know, some not so good, but some really good, if not great. And then you get a pretty robust schedule of top. I mean, Top Rank put a lot of their stars on ESPN Plus. They put a lot of pretty good fights on ESPN+. Plus. I mean, basically, if one of their stars fights in a foreign fight, at least in 2019, you could just book it. It would be on ESPN+. Plus. They, they did a lot of developmental fights for their, their, their rising stars on ESPN+. Plus. I mean, if I was just giving the grade for ESPN+, Plus alone, it'd probably be like A-, minus B plus territory. I do have a couple major qualms, one of which is there just isn't a true articulation of what type of fight card belongs on ESPN Plus and what type of fight card belongs on ESPN. And look, to be fair to them, that may not matter much. Uh, but, you know, the tangential part of that, sort of, sort of the cousin of that, which is really my second qualm, is that 
they just don't take advantage of ESPN Plus as a streaming platform for the viewing experience. And I guess that, like I said, it's like a cousin of what belongs on ESPN and what belongs on ESPN Plus. Like on ESPN Plus, there's no live sporting shows that can run late. There's no lead-in. There's no commercials that like. There, there are commercials, but there's no commercial-specific break time that's required. Like, you don't have to hit certain marks on certain things. And I guess all too often, we've just seen shows where there's long breaks in between fights. The pacing is, like, exactly like it would be for a regular ESPN boxing card. And I just think on the streaming platform, these things should move fast. Like, we should get in and out. We don't need too much waiting time between fights Especially with this much boxing on TV, I really value my time. I don't like waiting long in between fights. And look, this is a common complaint for everything, but I think especially on a streaming platform, there's just no reason for it to take this long. Um, Those things are, are significant for ESPN+. Plus, But honestly, as we move to ESPN, I mean, you just can't, you got to lower the grade because... The fights that were on Linear ESPN, they just weren't of the same caliber as the fights on ESPN Plus, and they're definitely not on the same level that ESPN made in 2018. Like, there's just too many fights that were long odds coming in. We knew one guy was really good, and we may not have heard of the other guy. And there were fighters that I just don't consider to be major talents who are fighting in main events. Um, overall, I'm going to say like B B minus. For ESPN this year in the terms of the total grade, not as good of a year as 2018. You know, I'd probably shade it closer to B minus. What I will say is this was a transitional year where we saw a lot of top prospects at top rank fight a ton. And it's set up pretty well for them in terms of making big events in 2020. I mean, I think that's like if I had another complaint, that would be it. That there were just there weren't enough marquee big fights that were clearly distinguished from the rest of them. And some of that is that they had to just give a lot of PR time to Tyson Fury and understandably so, uh, but he wasn't in great fights. And so the other stuff, you know, like a lot of top ranks, big names just weren't in huge fights in 2019. But the thing is a lot of them probably will be in 2020. And I don't want to touch too much on that because that is going to infringe on my next episode, but like, I just I think a lot of their guys, especially their younger fighters, made significant steps forward in 2019, and you can view that as a major positive. Uh, you saw you you saw these guys fight frequently, and you saw them develop. Um, but you know we're in that B B plus or B B minus territory for ESPN. I don't think they did as well as Fox this year. Um, but I think still, especially with the NSPM plus a very strong showing, I mean, look, we're in, we're in a golden age for viewing boxing. And I think it goes back to, it's one of the things that I mentioned about PBC, just, it's so impressive that top rank, like this company that only a couple of years ago was able to put up this many fights and granted, you know, a lot of them, like I said, complain about, uh, inconsistent quality with them, but that's just naturally going to happen because 
they these companies weren't built like these kind of promotional companies weren't built to put on this many fights quite frankly it's just so many and they're doing a pretty good job with it now let's move on let's go to the zone i'm going to f- divide zone fights into three categories. There's matchroom cards, there's golden boy cards, and then there's world boxing super series cards. Let's go with matchroom first. They had in January the Andre Akavov card. There was Gil Dominguez, Bival Smith Jr., and Farmer Carroll early on. I'm only going to mention the prominent UK card, so I'll mention Liam Smith versus Sam uh, Eggington in that category. That was January, February, and March. Not that impressive to be perfectly honest uh to say the least let's say finally in april we got a good card with uh serisa ketsu and visai versus juan uh, francisco estrada the undercard for that, that was a rematch the undercard for that was amazing like roman doheny is like probably the hipster fight of the year there was vargas soto in may we had devin haney versus antonio moran we had aj versus andy ruiz one in june with which had some really prominent undercards. We had Golovkin rolls after that, which was technically under Triple G boxing, but now Eddie Hearn is going to be involved in all Triple G's fights. Later in June, we had Andre Tsulecki. Then we had Dillian White versus Oscar Rivas. Then Mo Hooker, Jose Ramirez. Estrada Beeman was in August. Devin Haney versus Zaur Abdulev, uh, which actually had, I think, a decent undercard fight on it. That was... Uh, the Heather Hardy uh, Serrano fight, right? Um, Matchroom put on Golovkin Derevchenko after that, which is a fight of the year type deal. Usyk Witherspoon, that was okay. From the UK, uh, Progre Taylor, which they promoted. Obviously, that was World Boxing Super Series as well. In November, we got KSI Logan Paul 2. And BJ Saunders, Devin Haney were on that undercard. From the UK, we got Callum Smith, John Ryder. And finally in December, we had AJ Ruiz 2 and then the Jacobs Chavez Jr. card, which I've gone over ad nauseum with that pretty strong undercard fight. Okay, Golden Boy gave us Mungia Inoue, which also had that Zucan Rojas fight on it. Machado Cancio 1, Ryan Garcia versus Jose Lopez, then Mungia versus Hogan. And Canelo versus Jacobs, which had a pretty strong undercard. In June, we got Cancio versus Machado 2. In July, Vargas Cameda, which had some really good undercard fights on it. In August, we had Virgil Ortiz Jr. versus Antonio Rosco. Then Munguia Alote in September. Canelo Kovalev. And finally, Virgil Ortiz Jr. versus Brad Solomon in December. The World Boxing Super Series in April gave us Prograde versus Kirill Relic. Donaire. Uh, in that substitute fight, uh, Taylor Branchik, Inoue Rodriguez, Greatest Gowacki, Dortico's Tabidi, Progre Taylor, and then Donaire Inoue were waiting on the cruiserweights. I think a few things pop out with Dizon when you look at their schedule this way. First of all, is just how much more they rely on Matchroom than Golden Boy. Uh, which I can assure you that when Canelo signed, that was not really the plan. And Golden Boy did actually have some stronger sort of second-tier cards, uh, like Tier 2, let's call it, where we saw some really well-matched fights all the way through the cards. I mean, there were a couple of those where... There were some of those where there were like three or four good fights on there where their prospects really got tested. Some of them got... Sometimes they got beat. You know, we didn't see that 
I mean, you've heard me basically complain about undercard fights all the way through. Shout out to Golden Boy for actually putting on good undercard fights, basically. Um, at least in some of the cards, not all of them. The matchroom cards were inconsistent, but when they did it right, it was excellent. I mean, that April 26th card with Roman Doheny, SSR Estrada, Jesse Vargas, Umberto Soto, like, that was awesome. And there were other fights down on that card that were great, too. AJ Ruiz, 1 and 2, felt like really big events. Hearn deserves a lot of credit for that. you got to love that Mo Hooker-Jose Ramirez fight. And that's really impressive considering both fighters weren't even that known two years ago. Overall, it took a few months, but once DAZN put it together and it kind of mixed everything together, it was pretty impressive. Another thing you have to look at with DAZN, how much they relied on the World Boxing Super Series for competitive fights. These are fight cards that are built, they're just fights in general that are built for the core fan base. Like, they actually have fights leading to fights, they create stars, um, great matchups, and... It's not to say that DAZN didn't have competitive fights without these, but when you go one step below, like the Canelo and AJ fights, the World Boxing Super Series just produced so many of those competitive sort of old-school HBO World Championship Boxing type of fights where it clearly wasn't a pay-per-view, but it was also like a perfect version of a top-level fight that you get on a network where it wasn't a showcase. Um, It's just that's impressive. Another thing you notice when you look at this is just how star-driven Golden Boy is. I mean, they basically have Canelo, Ryan Garcia, Virgil Ortiz, Jaime Munguia, and that's it. And I love watching the Zucans and Andrew Cancios of the world, but, like, where is this thing going in terms of, like, star fighters? I mean, okay, so you look at DAZN on the whole. It's just clearly the best value. I mean, at $99 per year, it's just really not even close in terms of the value you get for your subscription. I, I'll give it an A- just for that. If you just look at who made the best fights, it's probably them as well, but it's more of a discussion. I mean, I think between them and Fox, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's pretty close as to who made the best fights. It's with DAZN, you're getting value, you're getting volume, you, you're, just, I mean, you're just getting so many fights. Uh, but you're getting a volume at other places. Like when you compare the really big issue, it's that DAZN is 99 bucks, and if you paid for all the good fights with Fox, you paid 300 bucks. I mean, if they were the same price, and maybe 150 or 200 bucks, like I'd still probably take DAZN. You know, my guy Kurt Emhoff, he went through and he made a great list. This was before December, and it was like the top 30 or so fights. And DAZN had like 15 or 16 of them. Fox had like 9 or 10 of them. And that's why this is really a two-network discussion. You know, you talk about how ESPN did give you some big names and some decent fights on ESPN+. Plus, But, like, they they had they had less. I mean, you know, this, this is really a two-horse race. Uh, to figure out which was the best network. And I think those are the positives for DAZN. The negatives, you know, so much volume that the inconsistencies were just there, especially at the beginning of the year. I mean, you can make an argument DAZN didn't put on a fight 
until that April 26th card that was really like that impressive at all. Um, but then it, but then it came through with, with two really impressive stretches, especially towards the end of the year. I mean, there's just so many great fights there. There is, that kind of leads me into like the, there's this experimentation with them, which can be good and bad. And it kind of rears its head in, in different forms. I mean, we saw several new production ideas that get tried for the broadcast throughout the year. They changed up the broadcast team. Uh, they would try different things in between fights. Like they did shoulder programming, but kind of gave it out to the world that rather than make it exclusive on their platform, they did fights with YouTubers. They did all kinds of fights with international fighters in different parts of the world at different times of the day. I mean, depending on your outlook, these can all be positive and negatives. I still think they have some work to do on the production side in terms of how the ring and the lighting looked, uh, but I liked how quickly they moved on from Sugar Ray Leonard. You know, the announcing team, I think, you know, I really, I mean, Showtime, I think, still has the strongest team. I think everybody else, there's just positives and negatives, uh, and I didn't really get it onto the other ones because they, I mean, I guess I'm talking about this through the vein of experimentation. Um, and they made good strides, but there were still some inconsistencies. You know, I don't think they did a great job on shoulder programming for the, for the big fights. Like it did all look good and it looked pretty slick, but it, you know, they're just trying different things. And some of it worked, some of it didn't work for me. I mean, you know, they don't do any real shoulder programming for hardcore fight fans unless it's like the early on stuff where Mannix is interviewing other journalists, which, I mean, to Fox's credit, their their inside PBC show kind of became a pretty decent show to watch by the end of the year. Like, I, you know, they started to get that down. Um when you talk about the YouTuber fights, like I don't really mind the YouTuber fights if it helps their subscriber numbers. Like this isn't sacrosanct religious territory for me. I like the international events. I mean, I'll be honest though, on those, they really need to improve their tune-in. So you kind of, in fact, they need to do this everywhere. You, they really need to improve their version of, as a fight fan, you know when to tune in for the fights that actually matter on the fight card. Uh, you know, some of the negative stuff, I mean, I don't think it's really a negative, but they relied on the World Boxing Super Series again, like, you know, for so much of those fight of the year types. We don't know if the World Boxing Super Series is coming back next year. I'll talk about that more next episode, uh, but that's just something looking ahead where you're like, ooh, there might be a little bit of issues on the horizon because of how much they relied on the World Boxing Super Series, you know. They obviously relied heavily on Gold Boy Canelo. This is another thing I'll talk about next. You know, this was drama this year, and it kind of forced a couple major issues. Uh, I'll, I will, I will leave it at that. That has all been really well covered by this podcast and in many other places. But. DAZN has made it clear they're all in on boxing in 2020 and that they need to rely on certain entities to deliver like Canelo and, and perhaps Golden Boy still. You know, we don't know really what's happening after that. 
again, that's kind of a next episode thing. Perhaps my biggest critique of DAZN is the same thing I said earlier about ESPN+. Plus. It just manifested itself worse on DAZN than in any other place with the Canelo Kovalev card, which is just like, this is a streaming, you know, you're streaming boxing. Like, there, there's no lead-in. There's nothing to worry. Just do it the way you want to do it. And that's a major ding. Like, that's that's a major ding. I still think just for the value of DAZN, in terms of not having to pay for pay-per-view, uh, you, you, this has got to be an A-. minus. Even with all this weird stuff, it's like, this has got to be an A-. minus. Like, they just delivered so many great fights. Um, you know, if you're going to dig them again, kind of like I said on the tune-in, like, just, we got to figure that out. There's got to be a better way to figure out when the fights that you care about are coming on. And I, I, I don't know what it is. That's, that's for these guys to figure out. Last year, for me, Showtime gave us one of the best non-pay-per-view schedules we've seen in like over a decade, probably. And this year, I think DAZN gave us a better schedule than that. Um, it was not as curated, which in this area is important given how much boxing there is out there and how much how valuable your time is as a boxing fan um i do really appreciate the places that curate the content rather than just sort of vomit it all out but the the zone just did a really impressive job for this so if i'm ranking them which I guess I am based on my grades. I'd say DAZN did was the best value to consumers. Fox was the second best value. ESPN was third, and, and Showtime was fourth. Um, I wrote an article for Ring Magazine that came out in the January issue of, of 2019 where I predicted it'd be an incredible year for fight fans just based on all the competition that exists right now in the sport for, for eyeballs. And in my next episode, I'll, I'll get into how I feel about 2020. But let me just say, there was a moment around April where I was really worried that I'd look like a complete idiot after writing that article. It's not going to be the case. I mean, this is going to be one of the best years we've had in the sport in a long time. And a lot of that is due to the money coming in and just the competition that's out there. Uh, and I think one of the things I'll preview, I think 2020 is going to shift because because of the intense competition, while there's been excellent boxing there have been very few breakthrough events which is one of the things i was talking about with the pay-per-view there just there just weren't and there weren't events that really broke through and there's some of that's just because there's so much volume and we have to adjust this new reality of having so much to keep up with um you know that comes down to one of the issues i've been hitting on it's just lack of curation that would we were just so spoiled with it with HBO and Showtime, and now we're spoiled with a different issue. Rather than only having fights two or three weeks, you know, weekends at most during the year, now we just got it every single weekend. Uh, but if you can get through some of the duds, and if you can become a smarter fan, I mean, this is just, you're never going to get this again. I mean, I, it, there's just, we're probably going to get this in 2020. I don't know what's going to happen in 2021. And certainly by 2022, 
this the this there's just there's going to be another seismic shift and there will not be four major networks doing boxing but for right now enjoy it while it lasts and hopefully improvements can be made in the weak spots but enjoy this while it lasts cuz it's not going to last forever all right short preview section there's no action at all on January 4th this weekend so Nice little break. That's why I'm, part of the reason why I'm recording this so late on Thursday night. Uh, but let's move on. Friday, January 10th, from Atlantic City and on Showtime, Clarissa Shields fighting Ivana Habazin for vacant WBC, WBO, Women's Junior Middleweight titles. Also on the card, Jerron Ennis fighting uh, Bakir Yubioff at welterweight. Ennis is a big-time prospect, and he's not really signed with a big time promoter right now or, or a network. So I find it really interesting, um, that he, anytime he's fighting, I'm watching, let's put it that way. Uh, on Saturday, January 11th, two cards of notes from San Antonio and on the zone. We have Jaime Mugia versus Spike O'Sullivan at middleweight, uh, where Mugia is making his debut also on the card. Uh, Franchon, Cruz Desern is fighting Alejandra Jimenez for a women's superweight title. And then uh, from Atlantic City and on ESPN, we have you know some pretty good fights. I mean, maybe a little bit lesser profile, but pretty good fights. Jesse Hart fighting Joe Smith Jr. at light heavyweight over 10 rounds. Steve Nelson fighting Chem Killick, uh, 10 rounds super middleweight. Pretty good stuff coming up. Uh, I mean, usually we always start slow in boxing uh, at the beginning of the year. And I guess that's one of the reasons why I'll be waiting a little bit on uh, my my preview episode next week. Odds on all these cards, just just throwing it out there. Clarissa Shields is a huge favorite, which you would expect. Uh, Jerron Ennis is like between 20 and 30 to 1 as a favorite in most places. Uh, Jesse Hart about four to one, five to one over Joe Smith Jr. And then Jaime Mugia is like all over the place. As low as sixteen to one, as high as thirty-three to one. But come later in January and then come February, we're gonna have some other good, good fights. Um, I hope this episode isn't too laborious. It's certainly a pain for me to put together. So if you guys think this is just me rambling on and on and listing fights unnecessarily, let me know. I will not do it next year because it is a pain to put together. Anyways, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is my second year doing this podcast. I have a wonderful time doing it. I had a wonderful time doing it uh, this second year. We have a lot more listeners than when we started, and, and by a significant margin. I appreciate all the people that listen and give feedback one way or the other. Um, I love doing this. And, and it's going to be a fun year upcoming. I think 2020, again, like I said, this is going to be another great year for boxing. And I actually think because of the pressure on places to succeed, we're going to see a lot. We're going to, we're going to see more of these bigger events that are going to break through. So I'll talk about that next episode. I got another couple, one or two evergreen episodes planned on coming up after that. But we'll see what comes up. There's a lot of stuff brewing uh, that... that will just be fun to talk about once it's there. All right. Take care, guys. Talk to you in two weeks. Happy New Year. Did you get what you was looking for?